Okay, so um, last time we were here, and I don't know who all was here, we finished up the Garden of Eden thing. Um, if you weren't here for that, I'll summarize that real quick. Adam and Eve eat the fruit. Um, there's a lot of naked in there, okay, which in the Hebrew can also mean sneaky or deceptive. Um, God finds Adam hiding. God says, why are you hiding? And Adam says, I was naked. There's that word play again, right? Uh, could mean I realized I was suddenly, I suddenly realized I was deceptive, right? Um, and then God says, okay, because you ate the fruit, here's what's going to happen. Gives them an array of things that are going to happen. And we talked about what's the crime? Well, they ate the fruit. Okay. What was the punishment? Hard to say. Because when God says, here's what's going to happen to you, he, he really doesn't say in a way like, this is what I'm doing to you as punishment. He says it, the language is more like, because, in fact, he actually says this, because you've done this, this will occur. Almost like these are consequences of what you did. Because what was the punishment for eating the fruit? Well, yeah, but the, the original stated punishment was death. And God doesn't kill him right away. Now, he says you're going to die, so the punishment still happens. But not only does he not whip him or, you know, chastise him or yell at him, he, he says, you need to be aware, these things are going to occur now. It's going to be hard to make a living. Childbirth's going to hurt. Right? Y'all have heard all these in Bible school when you're putting the little felt things on, right? Okay? But then he makes them clothing because they don't know how to do it. And then God gets together with himself. There's some weird language there, right? And says, okay, us. We have to uh, get them out of the garden because now that they're in this rebellion, what happens if they live forever that way? Which is the final act of mercy, even though you may have been taught that it was the punishment. If they stay in the garden, they live forever separated from God. The only way God can, can work out some plan to get them back together with him is to get them out of the garden so they can die because death is required of mankind now. Okay? C.S. Lewis, if you're a fan of reading religious works, actually says this was the biggest act of grace that God had performed to that time because by putting mankind out of the garden, out of the immediate presence of God, which is the garden, Okay. And, and putting them in a position where they can physically die, he sets in motion the redemption of man, which requires a sacrifice, which requires death. Okay. All right, so that was, we ended. Okay, now, if we had time, if we had a year, which is how long this usually takes me to go through, to go through the whole Old Testament, there's a lot of good stuff right after the garden. What's the next big event after Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden? If we're thinking like crimes against God. Yeah, Cain and Abel, right? Surely all of you thought Cain and Abel, right? Murder comes into the world. Cain kills his brother Abel. Yes? Okay. We don't have time to go through that story. Okay. 
you all know the story. Here's the interesting thing. Um, there's a narrative there that I like to spend a good while on because it's one of the narratives on what is wickedness. In the Old Testament, there's a Hebrew word that gets used for wickedness, and it gets used over and over, and it only starts to appear after Cain murders Abel. Um, Cain murders Abel, he gets banished, and, the, and God, out of mercy, puts a mark on his head so people won't kill him, right? Okay? And then there's, a, there's actually a couple of chapters of Genesis about Cain's descendants, who weren't all terrible. According to one of the chapters, one of those guys invented musical instruments. And, but, but there's this fascinating thing. Uh, mouse. Click. Yep, there's, there's Cain and Abel. Okay, in Genesis 4, okay? Now there's this grandson of Cain named Lamech, not the father of Noah. Same name, different guy, okay? And, and this is where it goes. Once violence enters the world, wickedness, um, it's interesting, we get wickedness, we sort of broad that, like wickedness is anything that's against the will of God. Wickedness, at least in this part of the Old Testament, almost always refers to violence, specifically selfish violence, unnecessarily, un unnecessary violence. And you get the Cain and Abel story, and then you get this progression where people get more and more violent. It's like a virus. Once violence comes in, it spreads. Until you get to Lamech, who is Cain's grandson, and in Genesis 4, we're not going to go through it, but I put it up here for you to see, he's, there's this, he kills two people. Um, he kill, this is actually two people. This isn't a great translation. But I've killed a man for wounding me, and I killed a young man, okay, for injuring me. So both of the words there imply accidentally. Like some guy accidentally hurt me, so I killed him. And then, young man here probably means boy. Okay? Young man in the Old Testament almost always refers to someone who's like four, 13 or 14, 12 to 14. Okay? So, and then this youngster accidentally hurt me, and I killed him too. And look who he's saying it to. Because he's bragging about it. Hey, baby. I'm the man. Literally. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this guy scraped my knee, so I killed him. And, and the crazy thing is, he's, I mean, it's a brag. And, and he's bragging to women about it. And that seems to work for him, because it's wives, not wife. Right? That's where society has gone in two generations. And it, I don't know, so... We would look at all that. Crime and punishment, crime and punishment, okay? But we're gonna, we're, we don't have a year, so we're skipping on. So then we get to Noah, and there's that wickedness thing again, right? Mm -hmm. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. Almost certainly, this again is referring to just outrageous violence. It, and so, the human heart was only evil at all the time. Now, y'all, I, um, I might say this. Violence, 
pulls you away from God. That's the message of this part of the Old Testament. Violence pulls you away from God, and not only that, it's addictive. It just is. We're not, and we're talking about violence for selfish reasons. Okay? Plainly, God advocates some violence later on in Scripture. Yes? Yes? Okay? But, but I mean, this guy killed people just because he could and bragged about it. Yeah? Okay? So we get Noah. We all know the story of Noah? Something significant is said of Noah that hasn't been said of any human being up to this point. Noah was the most righteous man of his generation. Noah is called righteous. Okay? Here's something else interesting. No other Old Testament patriarch is called righteous. Ex except for maybe Abraham. Okay? So if I were a rabbi, and we were going over this, here's what I would tell you. Noah was righteous, but plainly by the story, he was not a part of his society. Think about the story of Noah. God comes to Noah and says, you're the righteous man in your generation. I'm going to kill the rest because there's no hope for them. I'm going to start over with you, build a boat. And so he builds this huge boat. And, and what do the people around him come and do? Yeah, but they have to travel there. He's not living in the big cities. He, he's separated. Like, he's righteous, but his righteousness isn't having any influence on his society. I want you to keep that in mind because that's, that's a theme that, that we're going to see reverse with Abraham. Okay? Alright? So God... Starts over with Noah and his family. Yes? Okay. Any questions? I mean, you guys all, does every, uh, this is, we're just in here talking. Everybody knows all those stories, yes or no? Yeah? There's some interesting stuff in there that you don't catch unless you read it a couple of times. And we just don't have time for that. If you're interested, go back and read some of that, like after Cain kills Abel, some of the stuff, like the wickedness that's developing and Lamech and that kind of stuff. It's kind of scary, fascinating reading. We will remind you of the news a lot. Just random violence happening. Okay. Um, okay. So, uh, so that brings us. Noah happens. Noah was righteous. He struggled a little bit after his righteousness. Right after he gets off the ark, he he has some moral struggles. Uh, if you don't remember that part of the story, it's because we don't teach him in Sunday school. They're um, at least R-rated, and you don't teach that to little kids in Sunday school, but you can go read that. Um, but he struggles a little bit. Um, and then the next major figure is Abram. Now, I'm going to say Abram, okay, because he's not Abraham yet. So tell me what you know about Abram. Go. Bedouin. Elaborate. Probably not Bedouin, but I know what you mean. So, okay, which means what? Uh, nomadic. Yes. Nomadic dweller in a, uh, in a rigidly patriarchal society. Okay. At the start, was he a nomad? Oh. Go ahead. I was thinking of wearing 
Abram gets chosen. That's right. Oh, he struggled. <laughs> he sinned, I would say, but it, it's just like God's favor was upon him. Wait, was it him or Jacob that God broke, like busted his hip in the desert? That's Jacob. Wrestled with the angel of God. Um, okay, so let, let's start with this. According to scholars, about when did Abraham, or Abram, about when did he live? Ish. It was 2,000 years from Adam. Well, okay, so, yeah, okay. His, I mean, if we're going to date it like modern geological dating, what, where would he be? BCE or BC. I still like BC, but you know. That's right. That's where most scholars put Abraham. 2,000, between 2,100 and 1,900 BC. There's actually a pretty large school of, of more recent study that suggests maybe 400 years before that, okay, because of some Egyptian things and some Middle Eastern things that have been found. But it's a long time ago. It's the Middle Bronze Age or the end of the Early Bronze Age, if you want to put it into like school history, world history terms, okay? All right, yes? Okay, what city did he grow up in? Ur. Ur. Now, there are several Urs. Okay. Okay, so there, there are several cities, big cities named Ur. There's a big capital of the Akkadian Empire, southern capital of the Sumerian Empire, in the south of Mesopotamia called Ur, that for years scholars believed was the Ur that Abraham came from. Almost certainly it was not, although in a lot of your Bible forwards you still see that. We, that was something that people thought back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, because it's the biggest city named Ur, so of course Abraham came from there. But he and his father and his nephew Lot leave Ur, headed toward, say Canaan. Canaan, because God calls them to go to Canaan. And they stop for several years, probably because the father was old and frail, because he dies there at a city on the way called Haran. Do we have that slide? Yes. Yeah. So, well, we're still here, but we'll get to it in the next slide. So he probably came from an Ur that's up really near Babylon. It would have been an Ur, you know, Babylon either was just starting or not in existence in Abraham's time, depending on when you date him, okay? But it would have been a city-state really close to modern Iraq up in the north part of Palestine because Haran, which is still there, is south of that on the direct major trading route to Canaan yeah, and, and Sumeria, okay? His dad's name was. His dad's name was Tila, I believe. Am I wrong about that? Terah. T- oh, Tira. Tira. Yeah. yeah, we want to say Terah because it sounds like her. Is Tehran named after him? Uh, possibly. Um, 
here's the fascinating thing. That name is a derivative of the name of the moon goddess in the area. There's a pretty good chance that Abraham's father was a high priest of the moon goddess. Which could, it, which could explain why they had so much wealth. But for whatever reason, the family packs up and leaves the bigger city, Ur, for this small town, Haran, okay? And the father dies there. It looks like they spend several years there, and then God calls, comes back to Abraham and says, hey, time to go. And then he becomes basically a nomad for the rest of his life. Okay? What else do you know about Abram? We're still Abram. He's not Abraham yet. He had no children at the time. He was 75 when he headed to Canaan. No children. What else? Okay, but you're way ahead of me now. Okay. Abram. Yeah, well, he did, even though his family was a pagan family. I, that, it's important for you guys to understand this. They lived in a pagan culture. His father was named after a pagan goddess. This family was a pagan family. When, when, when God says, I'm your God, and Abraham says, you are my God, the language there implies, you're the God of my family, like the, the specific deity who watches over my family. Monotheism, as we understand it, hasn't happened yet. I'm just saying that so that you'll understand the, the context of the story, because that's important. No one is monotheistic. Abram might sort of become monotheistic toward the end of, the, of his life, but he certainly is faithful to Yahweh, which is God, and God is faithful to him. God never asks Abraham to be monotheistic. Is that where they believe in multiple gods? Mm -hmm. Yes. There, nowhere in Abraham's life does God say to Abraham, I am the one true God. There are no other gods. That comes later as God reveals himself to his people. There's an important principle here that the rabbis would point out, and it goes like this. God reveals himself to people based on where they are and continues to reveal himself as they progress in their under, understanding. I know that seems strange to y'all because it's like, wait a minute. Abraham's the father of the, I mean, he's the father of the faithful. He's the father, and he was faithful, but he probably was not monotheistic, at least not initially. Now, he may have developed into a, there's only one God guy, but nowhere in his life does God say, I'm the only God, you, all the rest are false. Okay? That comes later as, as the children of Israel progress in their relationship with the Lord. Okay? I think that's important for us to understand um, for a lot of reasons, but for the story at least. Okay? So what else about Abram? Tell me, tell me about Sarah. She was... She was younger, which is common those days, right? 
What else? Sarai. Thank you. What else about Sarai? She was still pretty old. Yes. And even though she was 65, she was the most beautiful woman in the land. She was also Abraham's half-sister. She was Abram's half-sister. Abram was the middle brother. The older brother died before they left Ur, probably. And so Abram was now the oldest brother. Lot was the son of the oldest brother, Abram's nephew that they took along. And the younger brother, who doesn't come with them, marries Lot's sister. Abram marries his half-sister. Well, but there, there, there sounds like a pretty valid explanation for that, why that was permissible. I mean, if you think about it, Adam and Eve contains all, all genetic diversity to exist without mutation. So there would be enough, imagine there would be such a low likelihood of genetic issues that far, that, that far down the line to where that would not cause horrible problems. You're making a great scientific argument for it being okay. Here, here, here's the social argument. Are you ready? Um, If you live in a clan, everybody's related to everybody. That's how humans lived for the vast majority of their early history, in clans and small villages. So if you married anyone, you married a relative. Abram's family, even after he becomes Abraham, continues marrying relatives. When, when, when Isaac wants to look for a wife, Abram sends him back to where his younger brother is, to his cousins. When Jacob's looking for a wife, back to the cousins, because it's all in the clan. Part of that is inheritance. You want to keep the wealth in the family. But, but also, remember, we're in a pagan culture, y'all. These aren't Jews. This isn't King David. This is early or middle Bronze Age. Language was just invented 500 years ago. Egypt has been a kingdom for 700 years and is building the Great Pyramids. I hate to tell you this, but no way Moses was in Egypt while they were building the Great Pyramids. The Great Pyramids had been built for several hundred years before Moses was ever born. There's just no way. So would the Israelites have worked on them? No. No, that's a, that's a modern myth from the 1800s. It looks great in the cartoon, but no. No, the Israelites, I mean, there was plenty of stuff to do in Egypt, but um, slavery also didn't mean the same thing. We, we want to take our 20th century view of what slavery is and put it on the Israelites in Egypt. We have records from Egypt that talk about Israelite units of their arm, Israeli units of their army, okay? So it wasn't slavery the way we think of it. Probably more like a, an oppressed racial minority. I'm just saying. Where they didn't get the full privileges of being Egyptian citizens because they weren't Egyptian. But they were still allowed to be in the army or to do common works. Very much like Jews are all over the world. Kind of an oppressed minority. Yes? Okay. I'm just saying. That's, we're not there yet. This is a good question. Okay. So Abram, Sarai, 
Lot move on from Haran? Yes? Okay. They get to Canaan. There we go. What's going on in Canaan when they get there? Happens a lot, apparently. No, it really doesn't. But a lot of stories revolve around famines because that was important. Remember, these are ancient people. They can't freeze food, right? So if you have two or three bad years of harvest, you're in trouble. Yes? Okay. All right. And so there's famine. So they go to Egypt. Tell me that story. Have y'all, well, now wait, let me pause here. Do y'all know the story of Abram, Abram and Sarah in Egypt? Okay, so if you've only heard this in Sunday school, you don't get this one either. Okay? They go to Egypt, and Sarah's the most beautiful woman in the land. And Abram is wealthy. He's traveling with probably a thousand or more people who are part of his household. So he's like a sheikh. That's sheikh, but sheikh, right? And when he travels, there's... A thousand people plus herds plus, right? I mean, it's like this, you know. And so the Pharaoh certainly knows that he's there. And rumors of this beautiful woman reach the Pharaoh, yeah? And so he comes to see her. Wow, that is a beautiful woman. So what does the Pharaoh ask Abram? Who is she? And Abram knew this was going to happen. He talked with Sarah before they went down there. And guess what he told her? I'm a, yeah, he said, I'm afraid the Pharaoh's going to kill me. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to tell him you're my sister, which, which is true, but is yeah. lying by omission <laughs> because it leaves out a huge piece of this, right? So what, now, now this is the R-rated part. What does Pharaoh do? He takes her as his wife. Which which we shy away from because there's only one way in that culture to take someone as your wife. They don't have a courthouse and there's no marriage. You can't marry someone. I mean, they would have a ceremony, but they're not your wife until... Infiltrate kidnapping. No, until you sleep together. So he plainly sleeps with Sarah because she's there long enough for him to take her as his wife and for God then to bring punishment on his house for what's going on. Mm -hmm. Abraham knew that was going to happen. Abram. What do you think about that morality? Do you think he knew, though, oh, that God's punishment was going to happen? No. Okay. But he knew that the Pharaoh was going to take her, and when he took her, he knew he'd be sleeping with her. And he might not get her back. So he goofed in trying to... Pretty cowardly right there. Yes. I mean, one thing about the Old Testament is it doesn't shy away from the flaws in the characters. I think that makes it more believable. Right? If Abram was the shining silver paladin who never did anything wrong, right, then you would go, no human being is really like this. Right? But here's a guy who's go having to go to a foreign land to beg food for him and his household, and, and he's worried that the king's going to kill them all, right? 
So he sacrifices his wife because he's scared. That's human to me. Now, I'm not saying it's good. I'm just saying I feel that. Yes or no? Yes? You've never done something that you wish you hadn't done because you were afraid? Yeah? I'm going to pause here and jump forward to the New Testament. You know what the number, what, it, all, over all Scripture, you know what the number two command from the Lord is? What He says to people more than, He says love each other more than anything. You know what the number two thing He tells us? Every time He sees us, He says this. Do not be afraid. Over and over and over. Do not be afraid. I am with you. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. So here's, here's theme two, and we haven't even got to the story yet, that runs through the Old Testament that we're going to see over and over. One is violence begets violence, and that pulls you away from God. The second one is this. Fear makes you do bad things and damages your relationship with the Lord. Now, I'm not talking about healthy fear like yeah, yeah. There's a person with a gun in that building over there. I'm going to go the other way. I'm talking selfish fear. I'm afraid that I might lose my money, so I'm going to do bad things to keep it, which is what Abraham does here, right? I'm afraid that I might be hurt or killed because of something, so I'm going to do a lot of bad things to avoid that that I know I shouldn't do. You may still, I mean, it's okay to be afraid of being hurt and killed. It's just not okay to be a bad person because of it. Does, does that make sense? I'm just tossing that. I'm, a, you know, I'm afraid that people will make fun of me, so I'm just tossing that out there. That's just human. Yes? Really, we all tend to be willing to do much worse things than we would ever normally do when we're afraid. Would you agree? And Abraham's afraid in Egypt, so he... Does bad things. Good morning. Good morning. Okay. So, by the way, God puts a plague on Pharaoh's house. Pharaoh's actually the hero of the story. He comes back to Abram and says, Why is there a plague on my house? And Abram says, Oh, well, you know, we were married. And he's like, Why didn't you tell me this? So to make up for it and try and get the plague off his house, he, he gives Sarah back to Abram. And then gives him a bunch of gifts. So Abram actually comes out of this exchange like much wealthier than he was. And then they go back because the plague's over. Okay, so. I've never fully understood like women's roles. So, okay, so let's get the, that's a great question. Let's talk about the culture of the time, okay? Um, and this is important because it's important when God gives, later on when God gives the old law, a lot of those laws look very slanted against women unless you understand the culture that he's given the law to. But women are property at this point. Women are only there for one reason, and that's to bear children. And men are in charge of everything, including whether the women live or die. I, I don't, I'm, not, I'm just telling you historically, not from Bible history, from what we know about history, it's a Bronze Age culture of people who fight with each other all the time. So the strongest wins, and that's males. In every culture. The, the, the myth that there are prominent females at this time 
is exactly that. It's a myth. The first female ruler of Egypt doesn't happen for another thousand years. And that's in a hereditary line. Okay? And Egypt was by far the most socially advanced country in the world at this point and the most stable kingdom. So, so there's another thousand years before the first female ruler of Egypt. The Queen of Sheba, whoever that was, okay, is the first female ruler that we know from, us, from Sheba, wherever that was. We don't even know where that was. North Africa, somewhere maybe. Okay? The point is, this is hard because this culture is so different than ours, but not that different from ours 200 years ago. In, in, a, in a primitive culture where strength means survival, the strongest are in charge. Yeah, so it's a good question. Um, only in modern times have women had the chance to do things on an equal level with men because in modern culture, strength isn't the primary prerequisite for everything that gets done. Okay? So women were valued in that they could have children and they were valued because plainly the patriarchs, some of the patriarchs loved their wives. Yes? But, but they were basically in society property. And, and if you don't believe that, when you, when you chose a woman to marry, you swapped property for her. Right? And that was considered an exchange. And the more property you swapped, the more you valued that, that woman. Okay? And that, y'all, that was true all the way up to, through frontier America. That's a dowry. That's the English word for it. Are you worth two cows? Okay? So women being viewed on an equal social or political or economic level with men is really recent. Really recent. Like in the last hundred years in America. This is 4,000 years ago. Remember, they just invented bronze. Right? Their first metals are, I mean, we're just out of the Copper Age and in the early to middle Bronze Age, right? Writing is, the, the Middle East, Egypt, and, and Mesopotamia are the only places in the world that have written language at this point. Just to tell you how long ago this is. Like there are other civilizations in the Indus Valley, right? And along the Yangtze, they don't have written language. Okay? In fact, there's a good chance that these civilizations carried the idea of writing over there as they traded, but we don't know that. Okay, good question. All right, so that brings us to this. Now, this is where the story that I want to talk about starts. All that was just like, I know, that's okay. All that was just like, what does the world look like? The world looks like this. Egypt is a kingdom. It's been a stable kingdom for six or seven hundred years. They've built the great pyramids. They're done with that or finishing it when Abraham is around. Babylon, Babylon doesn't exist yet. The, the south of Mesopotamia has gone through a couple of empires, which are really city-state alliances. Sumerians and then the Arcadians smashed them and then the Sumerians came back. Somewhere in that period is when Abraham is around. Okay. Sumer, Arcadia, Sumer. If you're not a student of like ancient world history, that means nothing to you, unless you watch Ghostbusters, you know, where they talk about the Sumerian word for this and that. But um, the point is, 
This is a long, long time ago. It's so long ago that we don't really know exactly when it happened because there's no way to keep calendars back then. I'm just saying. Even when we date like when kings were and empires were, there's, there's always error there. Okay? I'm just telling you all this. So that's how long ago this is. Okay? And Abraham is back in Canaan um, with Lot and all these people. Okay? And, and they're renting land um, from the Amorites who are, in, who are pretty much the dominant race in Canaan right now. Um, all of Canaan which is the Jordan River Valley from really the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea, okay, is dominated by the Amorites in, and they're in city-states, okay? And each city-state has its own king or high priest who is the ruler, okay? But, it's, but it, culturally it's the same. It's pagan, okay? And, and all of the cities, except for possibly Salem, are, are pagan cities, pagan religion, which would include child sacrifice, it would include rituals that involve sex four or five times a year, okay? Like group sex, okay? Like violent group sex, okay? And all kinds of other stuff that we would go yikes to, okay? That's where Abraham is chilling, but he's no stranger to this. He came from a pagan culture, remember? Okay. And that's where we'll start because we want to look at, we, we've got these two things. Violence pulls you away from God. Fear pulls you away from God. Okay? Well, what is it that God expects of us then? What, why is Abraham maybe eventually called righteous? And, and bef I know we're done, but before we go, a lot of people will read each of these little, like, I call them vignettes. You don't know the word vignette? It's like a short story. They'll read each little incident here as like its own little like, and then this happened, and then this happened. But that's never the way the Old Testament is written. It's always written to show some aspect of God's relationship with man. And starting here and going through about 18 or 19, I contend is all one story that interrelates. Mm -hmm. And when you start pulling things out of the context of this one story, Abram becoming Abraham, okay, then you lose meaning. So we're going to look at this one story, the transformation of Abram, the pagan who was kind of cowardly but wealthy, to Abraham, possibly the righteous guy, father of many nations. Mm -hmm. What happens in here? Right? Because that'll give us some clue as to when we say righteousness, what does that mean? Because I'm going to be honest, people have used the term righteousness to club people to death who, who are not like them. Because they've used it too broad. Because I think we use the term righteousness too broadly just like we use the term wickedness too broadly. I'm just, for what that's worth. And it would, I think it's important that we look at what does Abraham do in this narrative where God says, yes, that's, that's why I'm choosing you. And yes, that's why you're going to be 
bring my righteousness. Okay? You with me? And I could be wrong. I always caveat that. This is a moral story for people who lived 2,000 years ago. Actually, written down, I mean, who lived, I'm sorry, who lived 4,000 years ago? Probably written for the first time for people who lived 3,000 years ago. Okay? So, I could be wrong, but I'm going to go with we can get meaning out of this too. All right, questions, comments? Did it freak you out that Abraham was a pagan? Abram is totally a pagan. He, he wouldn't become, he doesn't, remember the covenant happens in this part of the story. God sworn no covenant to Abram, and Abram sworn no covenant to God up to this point. Right? I know, it's freaky, but true. Okay, good, I'm done. If you guys, look, I challenge you to go read the Cain and Abel and the Noah story, because that'll give you great background on, like, the wickedness narrative and the fear narrative, right? Um, for what that's worth.